In the days of lace ruffles, perukes and brocade, Brown Bess was a partner whom none could despise. An outspoken, flinty-lipped, brazen-faced jade with a habit of looking men straight in the eyes. At Blenheim and Ramelieve's fops would confess they were pierced to the heart by the charms of Brown Bess. Though her sight was not long and her weight was not small, yet her actions were winning, her language was clear, and everyone bowed as she opened the ball. On the arm of some high-gated grim grenadier, half Europe admitted the striking success of the dances and routes that were given by Brown Bess. When ruffles were turned into stiff leather stocks and people wore pigtails instead of perukes, Brown Bess never altered her iron grey locks. She knew she was valued for more than her looks. Oh, powder and patches was always my dress and I think I am killing enough, said Brown Bess. So she followed her redcoats, whatever they did. From the heights of Quebec to the plains of Versailles, from Gibraltar to Acre, Cape Town, Madrid, and nothing about her was changed on the way. But most of the empire which now we possess was won through those years by old-fashioned Brown Bess. In stubborn retreat or in stately advance, from the Portugal coast to the Corkwoods of Spain, she had puzzled some excellent marshals of France till none of them wanted to meet her again. But later, near Brussels, Napoleon, no less, arranged for a Waterloo ball with Brown Bess. She had danced till the dawn of that terrible day. She danced till the dusk of more terrible night. And before her linked squares, his battalions gave way. And her long, fierce quadrilles put his lancers to flight. And when his gilt carriage drove off in the press, I have danced my last dance for the world, said Brown Bess. If you go to museums, there's one in Whitehall, where old weapons are shown with their names writ beneath. You will find her upstanding her back to the wall, as stiff as a ramrod, the flint in her teeth. And if ever we English had reason to bless, any arm save our mothers, that arm is Brown Bess. So in case you didn't recognise it, that was Kipling, of course, with his poem Brown Bess, The Army Musket, 1700 to 1815. It actually went on a lot longer. I hope it's not too predictable of me to start a second episode in a row with a poem. But let's be honest, it's a bloody good one, right? You can't beat Kipling, in my opinion. I'm sure he's now derided by modern scholars. But for old-fashioned patriots like me, he'll always be one of the best. I think my favourite Kipling poem is The Ballad of East and West. Don't worry, I'm not going to read it now, though I'm sure I shall when I eventually get round to covering the Northwest Frontier. It's just a beautiful poem. Look it up. But anyway, guys, let me stop jabbering and focus, because if you haven't already guessed, today we are discussing the Brown Bess Musket, aka the British Army's muzzle-loading, smoothbore, flintlock, land-pattern musket, and its various derivatives. I'm joined in conversation by one of my favourite fellow YouTubers, Rob, from the amazing British Muzzle Loaders channel. If you're not already subscribed, do go check him out. Before we begin, though, I did want to ask a favour. I'm keen to avoid putting advertising on this podcast, so I'm hoping you can support me and keep the episodes coming by giving me a five-star rating and writing a review on your podcasting app. Those chores will only take you a few seconds, but would really help to spread the word about the show 
and encourage a new generation of military history geeks like us. So for those of you who follow military history as closely as me, Rob needs no introduction. He and I had a great interview in season one about the Martini Henry rifle, so if you want to go back and check that out, please be my guest. But otherwise, let's begin the Brown Bess. Can you talk to me, can you explain how the, the Brown Bess musket came about? I know there was a number of different patterns, you know, eventually sort of the, the India pattern was the sort of became the mainstay, didn't it? But can you talk me through right. that progression and how, how we got there? I guess uh, uh, without getting, I mean, there's obviously a lot of people and information out there that would be able to get right into the weeds, but uh, essentially it comes out of the 1600s and the, 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 the sort of the, the way that, I say system, but there really wasn't a system. There was just a trade, a gun trade. And they were talking primarily uh, in the UK, obviously, um, that if a colonel was going to raise his regiment, which was the sort of way it was done back then, then he would be, uh, you know, having to foot the bill for everything. Uh, that uh, weapons included, he had to source his own weapons, uh, and this would be gone and sourced uh, on in the trade. So we need a thousand muskets, call it, or or you know, five hundred muskets because the other five hundred men in the battalion are going to be armed with pikes. Uh, so it's a, almost like a, a bespoke kind of system. Is that I find a contractor who is going to get me what I need. And what you see as a result is just a, a hodgepodge of styles. Of, and we're talking sort of in the, the latter matchlock era here, like English Civil War kind of thing. And um, that the standardization across, I say the army, but, uh, you know, even during the English Civil War, uh, the new, new model army notwithstanding, I mean, it's very much almost a medieval style of of raising a, an army, you know, so it's got that same kind of real organic, you know, sort of supply system. And the way that the, the brown best kind of rises from the ooze, as it were, is, I mean, calibers were, generally speaking, uh, fairly standardized uh, in around three quarters of an inch, 0.75, but would there be 0.8 and, you know, 0.7? There, there would have been. And uh, I've actually, uh, on that note, I've actually got some documentation talking about the sort of early, mid-1700s, jumping ahead a little bit, uh, that is giving specific direction uh, to colonels to double-check that the ammunition issued to their men fits their muskets. So even by the sort of well into the 1700s, there was or the necessity for the precaution to you know, kind of make sure that the, the, the ammunition, the ball, fit barrel. Um, what you see coming out of the 1600s is a gradual uh, sort of formalization of the pattern of arm as the army becomes much more, uh, you know, a, a national entity um, and uh, the logistics behind it, likewise, is a, a pattern of musket uh, called um, the pattern of, 10,000, I think. And it's, I think it, I, I get that reference from a DeWitt Bailey book who, who references as such, and it would be sort of the proto Brown Bess. And obviously there was 10,000 of these muskets sort of made as a large single pattern uh, of arm for specifically the military. And there's a couple of other small uh, patterns that come in there but eventually what you end up with is the long land pattern 
musket. So it's not called the brown bass. The brown bass is very much a colloquialism. And we can talk a little bit more about that later, perhaps. Uh, but the official name of it is the, the the land pattern musket. And of course, when the what we know today being the long land pattern musket comes out, well, there is no short one. So you don't call it the long land pattern. You just call it the land pattern versus the sea service, the sea pattern, the sea service musket. So uh, it comes out of this gradual sort of uh, formalization of the logistics system is that we need to get the same weapon in the hands of all our soldiers and this this old style is all, almost private procurement and the the necessary changes within the arm that happen from batch to batch and maker to maker they make the stocks this way or this guy makes the stocks that way and well his barrels are kind of you know 0.75 but they they generally are more towards the 0.8 kind of thing um you know they, they gradually over over these these uh, you know sort of formative years of the late 1600s and early 1700s sort of nail that down and what comes out of it is this law uh, sorry the land pattern musket and it's nominally again nominally 0.78 in caliber and that's according to dewitt bailey so it's a fairly you know generous caliber um and of course in that same time we've spoken from the english civil war on into the 1700s the biggest change apart from the the patterning of these arms of course is the introduction and the complete uh, replacement of the matchlock by the flintlock, which is you know a, a, a quantum leap as far as our general um, uh, firearms history and development go. We go from something with you know um, a serpentine that holds a, a slow match that's you know burning you know quietly away, and having to the procedures of having to make sure that's going to when I want to fire it's going to hit the pan, and there's a big song and dance that comes with that. So now we just need a, a rock in a set of jaws and that rock hits uh, a steel or what was termed the hammer back in the time. And that creates a spark, which then ignites a powder in a pan. And initially they try uh, a couple of uh, patterns. Um, uh, the snap hands is a type of lock that relies on exactly the same principle, but it's much more complicated. It's almost a hybrid. Uh, the pan is uh, has its own cover to keep out the damp and, and to keep the powder in the pan when you're moving around. Uh, but the steel or the, the hammer, as it were, is on a separate piece mounted separate and distinct from the pan. But it's angled in a, in a, in a way that you would be familiar with if you knew what a flintlock looked like. And the, the cock holding the flint strikes that, which then moves out of the way. But before you do that, you have to open the pan cover. So you can see the sort of the, the, the embryonic stages of, of a true flintlock. Uh, and this, uh, the pan cover... And the hammer or the steel, now we call that the frizzen, uh, are become attached. And the, method, the, the the function of striking the steel, creating the spark, and opening the pan are combined, which of course leads to a single step. Well, if you include bringing the piece to full cock and then firing it, it's actually two steps. But as far as pulling the trigger and making the, the firearm go off, it's a one-step process. Now, instead of having to open something and set up all that kind of stuff, so it's it's a, it's a big deal. So when I talk about the these early patterns of, of musket becoming common, I don't want to overshadow that importance of the introduction of the flintlock. Um, it's somewhat, I say, somewhat more weatherproof uh, because you're not dealing with something that's burning in the open in terms of your slow match with a matchlock musket. So. We come out in the early 1700s with this land pattern musket, and that serves 
in uh, there are uh, some stylistic changes that that occur, but it's a true flintlock. And that 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 musket ends uh, its service sort of life by the 1780s. That the grenadier companies of British battalions were still equipped, nominally, mind you, the uh, notwithstanding any supply issues and that kind of stuff. But um, uh, right up until the American War of Independence. And why so why specifically grenadier see, companies? Why 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 grenadier companies? Uh, because uh, in the Grenadier companies, they were typically chosen um, from the earliest of times as being big uh, sort of assault troops. And they are called the Grenadier Company because at the time, the thought was uh, a lot of siege warfare predominated, in, especially in Europe. And they perceived this need of individuals that would throw grenades, so bombs. So uh, what happens is the function, the, the, the tradition of having these large men within a battalion, within one of the companies of a battalion, is maintained long after uh, the, the function of the grenade is is passed. So with the reduction in this kind of siege warfare that predominates uh, in the, uh, you know, before the 1700s, uh, particularly Vauban, that those types of names get thrown around, those big star-shaped forts, that all that era that was very much a focus of, of European warfare. Um, so the grenades sort of come out of service, but we have this tradition of having the biggest, strongest men all concentrated into one company. Um, uh, at the time, you know, sort of nine companies in the battalion, um, eight line companies and one grenadier. This is later augmented by uh, a light company who were almost the opposite of the grenadiers, if you will. I know it's a bit long-winded, but the reason why the long pattern is maintained within the grenadier companies is because of its extra length uh, and shall we say awkwardness when you're big and tall you have the better ability to manage that um, in terms of reach in terms of, of being any kind of uh, assaulting formation you've got longer reach on your bayonet uh, that kind of stuff so uh, that's essentially why it's the, the long as we know it to be after the introduction later of the, the later patterns the long land pattern lasts where it does within that particular organization, because they're the big, strong guys. It, to me, it's interesting is that there's these evolutionary sort of ebbs and flows, and um, whereas things are created or, or types of troops are created uh, for a specific role, they, you know, over time, the reason for their creation ebbs, but the tradition remains, and and sometimes they're redesignated or they're, they're sort of retasked, as it were. And, you know, to this day, uh, the, the function of the Grenadier Company, obviously, within an infantry battalion, uh, you know, isn't isn't the case anymore. But if we look at, say, the Queen's Birthday Parade, which is the big the trooping of the colour in London, when the escort to the colour, or in the case, the escort for the colour, as it is before the, the function uh, happens of taking the, the colour into their ranks, they are positioned on the right of the line. And when they march forward to receive the color to pick it up and then troop it through the ranks, the tune that is played as that company or that, that guard, as it were, is marching forward to receive the color. And you can, you know, this is all on YouTube if, you're, if your listeners are interested. The march they play is the British Grenadiers. And that is specifically because the company that paraded on the right of the battalion was the Grenadier Company. So that's an interesting side point that that, that, that tradition in, in, in albeit reduced form, still exists today. Uh, but that's why the, the long land pattern lasts where it does. Um, you know, very, about the mid-1700s, they realized that maybe 
the 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 length the is not necessarily required and they bring it upon themselves to maybe let's shorten things and they bring it down to a 42 inch barrel and designate it the short land pattern essentially it's the same musket it's just shorter uh, there are some other cosmetic differences um, in terms of the the lock plate and and over the over the century essentially the 1700s that is you see a, a general uh, reduction in the the uh, uh, the word escapes me right now but the the, the detail that's put into making them the uh, the ornamentation is the word I was looking for. Some of the small pieces, the uh, the, the the spring that holds the the uh, tension on the, the the hammer steel and pan cover, uh, you know, it's got some some cuts made in the uh, little finial on the end where the screw goes in, and that changes over time. The shape of the lock plate uh, with the long pattern is typically quite curved, so it's very organic looking. Um, but not only is it curved when you look at it from the side, excuse me, from the side, but it's also curved in its its face. So someone's had to file that to give that sort of uh, uh, profile to it. Um, you know, by the end of the century, you know, the, those kinds of details are the, the, the new land pattern musket, for instance, that comes in at the beginning of the 1800s, albeit in very limited fashion. Uh, and it's got a flat lock plate, flat. So, stand, you know, cut this piece of metal out, file it flat. All that detail over these hundred years slowly wanes because they realize that well, warfare is getting bigger and we need more people and more of everything. And to simply, uh, you know, incorporate some of these details is just, it's foolish, really, because we're paying money for somebody to sit and engrave things and to file things around when they could just make it flat. And the function, of course, doesn't change. Um, so they introduced the short pattern. And this is the predominant uh, weapon used during the American War of Independence, the American Revolution. So your line companies uh, would be would carrying those, and that's of course the majority of the army, and uh, uh, the grenadier companies are the last vestige of the use of the la the long line pattern. And after the American War of Independence, essentially that long line pattern just fades into uh, history, as it were, and the short la short line pattern maintains its sort of precedence right up until the uh, 1790s. And uh, uh, at that point, they, the trade, as it were, just can't produce uh, to the point that it needs to, especially with these Napoleonic Wars, sort of the, the you know, the, the French Revolutionary Wars, and Europe's just going, you know, in terms of, in terms of its stability is going, going down the toilet, <laughs> uh, as it does from time to time, admittedly, but uh, they realize that we need more muskets. And they look around, and within the the call it the British system, because the East India Company is essentially, especially by this point, it's its own thing. And uh, you know, as far as um, your listeners go, it basically rules India as a proxy government. It started off very much so as a trading organization, but very quickly it is given the the, the privilege, as it were, by its charter of governing India. And this includes uh, pacification of areas. So essentially, the East India Company has its own army. And in doing so, it it develops along a, a parallel but separate line from the British Army. And they develop their own pattern of musket. And uh, it's shorter than the shortland pattern yet again, a 39-inch barrel. 
and it lacks some of the finishing qualities. Uh, you know, today, especially when you look at examples or the originals of the the, uh, the Shortland pattern and what becomes the East India pattern or the India pattern musket, um, you know, it's really hard to see the differences in terms of, of economies and, and lesser finishing. Uh, but that's because they're 200 years old and they've all been bashed around a lot. Um, so having never seen a brand new example of both, I can only rely on some references. And generally speaking, uh, they all refer to the finishing. So the fitting of the parts, uh, the wood to metal fit, the standard of oiling, um, the standard of finishing of the metal. Uh, not to say they were junk uh, by any means. I mean, mine is an India pattern made in, uh, in, in Britain. And the finishing looks wonderful to me. <laughs> but again, it's, the, it's all relative, right? But what they have is this ability to purchase the, the British you know, system in order to augment its numbers of muskets when the Napoleonic Wars uh, and the Revolutionary Wars sort of kick off and, and come to a head, uh, they end up purchasing muskets from the East India Company. And those enter service in, in British Army service as the India Pattern Musket. And later on, they realize that the economies afforded, you know, little things like uh, the, the number of tubes that hold the ramrod under the stock. In the Shortland pattern, there's four, including the, the main one at the, the base, uh, at the swell, where the, the ramrod disappears into the stock. Uh, there's four in total, whereas in the India pattern, there's only three. So, you know, obviously in an economy, there's one fewer part, less brass, less fitting, less time in manufacture. All these little details add up. And uh, essentially, the India pattern becomes, uh, or it is adopted in British service, and they're made new in Britain. Uh, they always were, but they were made for the East India Company. Now they're being made for the British Army and British forces. And that is the weapon that is used throughout the the, the real Napoleonic kind of era, as far as the, the 1800s, the Peninsula, Waterloo, all that kind of stuff. And how and, uh, how, uh, how effective a weapon was it compared to the earlier models? I mean, I know they'd simplified it. Had it become a better weapon, a more effective weapon, I should say, or, or was it actually not as good as those earlier, more elaborate models? Um, I would say militarily speaking, and, and when taking the whole sort of military experience as a whole, no, they weren't more effective. Uh, I suppose there could be some sort of argument made that if you had a long land pattern musket uh, with um, a next to an India pattern musket and on a range all benched, rested, and you know the, the, the utmost of care taken in loading and all that kind of stuff, you might be able to demonstrate some sort of uh, superior accuracy by the, the extra few inches of barrel, M might. Uh, but on top of that, with you know perfectly fitting ammunition, uh, a clean barrel, but also in the, the environment that you're using it in, I would say that if you take that and you replace it with the military kind of experience, so this means uh, in action from a standing position predominantly, perhaps kneeling, so now you're taking away all benefit of resting and you know good, good aim and that kind of thing, um, that you... Also add in any kind of stress related to being in action. Also reacting to words of command. So you're also firing typically on command, which means you don't have the luxury of, like you would at a range doing testing, taking your time, making sure your, your, your 
citing the weapon as best you can. These things go out the window when you're talking about a military context. You present your fire lock and you fire it when I say fire. Now, if you happen to be in the middle of a breath at that point and your musket happens to be slightly elevated, well, then your bullet's going to go high. But you had to fire when you were told to fire or as close as you could anyway. So when you say that, you know, is there a difference in effectiveness? No. Um, you know, people will perhaps argue about reach of a long line with its bayonet versus that of a short or an India pattern. It, 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 in reality, you know, maybe in a fencing class, you might get an advantage, but the battlefield is not a fencing class. And typically, if you're at the point of having to use your bayonet, you're either standing, watching someone bear down on you, or you're the guy who is bearing down on somebody. And somebody in all anecdotal, or not say, but the vast majority of anecdotal examples, before those bayonets cross, somebody runs away. They're the people that are attacking stop and run back because they lose their nerve, or the people that are being attacked are already sort of compromised in some way. And when they see the evidence of someone coming at them uh, through the smoke, through a cheer, through physically being close enough to see them from the outset, they realize that, oh, geez, we're in a bad state and let's get out of here. So I, I know, again, that's a, a bit of a detailed answer. It, it could have been easier saying yes or no, but I find it interesting when, when we talk about these kinds of things, because a lot, a lot of people, a lot of people um, sort of, it, it's an easy, I don't, I don't mean this in any kind of disparaging way, but it's an easy thing to focus on, what, which one's better, and I'd take this over that any day. Well, perhaps uh, those kinds of arguments have specific reasons attached to them, but as far as the way I look at it, is very much as best that I can in that military context. And the, the fire delivered by a volley of, say, 100 men in 1740 with long land pattern muskets would be essentially the same as a volley delivered by 100 men in 1800 with India pattern muskets or 1809 or pick a day there. That it, it's very much governed by the realities of what the weapon is. We haven't talked a little, uh, we've only brushed on it briefly uh, at this point, but the other huge factor in uh, establishing the effectiveness, and by that I mean sort of its accuracy and rate of fire and all that kind of thing, um, is the ammunition. And ammunition of the era was in a paper cartridge, which was a combination of a ball uh, wrapped up in a paper tube, um, Varying countries used varying styles of manufacture. Uh, there are examples of internal holes that separate the ball from uh, in the process of rolling the, the paper up, which is one way to sort of separate them. You can't just, well, yeah, I guess you could, but it's it's less effective to just make a roll of paper tight around a ball with, with a metal, or sorry, a, a wooden dowel, and then tie one end off uh, next to the bullet and then dump powder in it. Um, because what happens is over time and over movement in a pouch uh, through handling, that powder will migrate past the ball into the wrong end of the cartridge. So what you end up seeing in a lot of examples, and there's, believe it or not, there's not many left as far as originals go, and some of them are perhaps later in the era, um, even moving on into the Victorian era. Uh, but what you see is some sort of separation within that cartridge. Um, that within a fold of paper or a second string that's choked uh, the bullet uh, on the powder side 
And this prevents that powder migration. Um, so this paper cartridge is rolled up with powder, so it's almost self-contained uh, with the sense of there's no priming primer in it. You can't load the whole thing and expect it to shoot because it's meant to use, obviously, with the flintlock. So a part of that becomes the priming. So when you rip the powder end of the, the cartridge off, you place that powder in the pan and then shut the pan by closing the, the, the hammer and the pan cover, which is, of course, all attached on top of that. And then you go about taking the rest of the powder and pouring it down the barrel. Um, and then, which is uh, commonly, there's a lot of stuff out there about ammunition, the way you load these things. Uh, maybe you want to talk about, about later. But in a nutshell, at this point, it uh, it's very efficient because you've already torn the end of the cartridge off. And the prescribed method to use it is that you simply take it and pour it down the barrel. And in doing so, you empty this sort of powder let's call it the powder end of the cartridge, which becomes an empty paper tube. Now that paper tube is approximately the same diameter as the bullet. And what that enables you is simply to almost in one motion, pour the powder and then let go and place the cartridge in the muzzle. And in a clean barrel, it'll actually just slide right down. But then in that process, as it's sliding down, the powder's emptying and falling to the bottom of the barrel. Uh, when the barrel's fouled, typically that, that paper uh, with the bullet inside it will sort of hang up at the muzzle just through fouling that's created by burning of the black powder and the paper just sort of grabs. It's, not, it's nothing that you can't overcome by very light pressure, but it holds things right at the muzzle. Um, of course, the whole reason behind being able to load it like this and relatively easily is the size of the bullet. And the size of the bullet is typically uh, uh, around 0.69. So you've got a, in early uh, versions of the, the, uh, the, the land pattern, you've got a 7.8 barrel, 78 caliber. Of course, these, in terms of the minutia, uh, the differences between musket to musket and batch to batch and manufacturer to manufacturer, they're still there, but they're, they're generally reduced. Uh, but by the time you get to the India pattern, it's been reduced to 7.5. So you have a 7.5 caliber barrel and you've got a 6.9 caliber ball. And simple math tells you that there's a large number uh, or a large degree of what we, what we call windage space between the size of the ball and the inside of the barrel. This partly is taken up with the paper, but the combination of paper and ball is still remarkably smaller than the inner diameter of the bore. And this is a necessity militarily. Uh, speaking, if you don't have a certain degree of windage, you'll never be able to use the musket past one or two rounds. So obviously these, these weapons are used routinely in for extended periods of time, uh, especially between cleaning, because cleaning is a bit of an evolution in itself. Uh, so this small ball and the relatively large caliber of the musket exists through the entire period what this does and it, it, as i mentioned at the beginning is this real essential difference between being um, you know, very accurate and not accurate and speaks to the effectiveness as it were of one or the other is the windage when you fire that powder burns and it essentially will blow by the bullet and the gases will escape past it and actually exit the barrel before the bullet will in doing so, that bullet 
has a certain degree of, you know, latitude as it travels down the barrel um, and it bounces, essentially. This is to a some degree mitigated slightly by the inclusion of this paper within the cartridge. And it comes, forms a, a very rudimentary sabot, if you will, as it gets crushed up on top of the powder, but below the ball as you've loaded it. Um, but still, there's a lot of windage. And when that barrel leaves, uh, it's got some irregularities to it. Uh, it may be on one side of the barrel as it leaves the muzzle. And those gases that are pushing behind it, um, if it does leave to one side, they'll want to escape following the path of least resistance out between the large gap on one side of the ball and the side of the barrel. And what this does is it creates more pressure. And just like blowing on something, it wants to push to that side. And uh, what you see then is, of course, that ball flying off the line of the barrel. And this could happen, you know, in, in any kind of random way. It could be up, left, down, right, any which way uh, possible. Um, so that's the ball is not set up for success in the modern sense uh, of a modern bullet fired out of a rifle. So no matter if you've got a long land pattern or, or an India pattern, that effect is maintained the entire way through. And it is a severely limiting factor in the accuracy of a smoothbore uh, flintlock military musket. You can shoot these these things relatively um, you know, accurately when using a combination of, like in a modern sense, a target shooting sense, with wads and uh, patches and all this kind of thing, none of which have even the slightest relevance to any kind of military application whatsoever. Uh, I mean, at all. Nobody has them. Nobody carries them. Nobody's issued them. You, you know, it's it's just, it is very much a modern um, solution to trying to make these better because they're smoothbore. Of course, the final thing that really affects their effectiveness and that, um, you know, doesn't differentiate between these patterns is that they are smoothbore and that the stability of that bullet has been affected as it leaves the muzzle by the escaping gases, by the way uh, on a, you know, it's bounced off the inside of the barrel and it's whatever it hits last, it will affect it uh, on its flight kind of thing. But also the ball, a sphere is inherently stable flying through the air. And that the only way it does become stable really uh, is by spinning. And that's why when you watch, um, uh, I guess, I mean, even a, a cricketer will do the same thing. A baseball player does the same thing. When they throw that ball and they want to put it straight where they want it, that when it rolls off their fingers, it's spinning. But in a smoothbore, that, ex that doesn't exist. So not only is that bullet, you know, bouncing down the barrel, the gases are affecting it adversely as it leaves the muzzle, but then it's going to fly in a certain direction, but because it's not spinning, it, it, it's going to wobble in the air. And um, in, I know in terms of baseball, there's a type of pitch that you throw that limits the amount of spin you put on the ball, and by doing so makes it unstable through the air and very hard for the person who's batting at, uh, at it, it to track it through and be able to hit it. So these things all combine. So we have windage, we have, um, you know, uh, uh, adversely affecting trajectory, but also the fact that it doesn't spin in the air. You know, uh, as you say, if you could prove that that few extra inches of barrel on a long land pattern would give you an advantage uh, in musketry over a, an India pattern, 
it would be really, really difficult. And then apply the military context, and that takes any shred of possibility away from that, in my mind anyway. And, and my understanding is, Rob, uh, I mean, you've shot these a lot. They were never meant to be aimed. There's no sights on them, right? You just kind of point it in the direction of the attacking column and pull the trigger and hope for the best. Is that, is that essentially how the, the sort of doctrine of using these things was? I suppose if you compare it to something modern with, with you know, front and the back sight, then yes, to say that they weren't aimed. Um, in, and I'm no expert in the sort of mid-1700s, the sort of Seven Years' War era, uh, 1740s, that kind of thing. But my understanding, and I could be corrected of this, and I'd be happy to be corrected, but my understanding of the platoon exercise of the era, and the platoon exercise speaks to the drills that are taught in order to produce fire with your musket. So how to hold it, how to load it, how to fire it. Uh, the details of the platoon exercise at that point very much speak to a leveling of the musket in that word, and also the position of the head up off of the stock, off of the butt. And so you're not sort of even, you're looking along the barrel, but you're not looking right along the barrel, if you will. Um, you can hold a broomstick up to your, to your shoulder and squint along it, Obviously, there's no sights on a broomstick, but you can also just put it in your shoulder and stick your head up. And that difference in space then uh, uh, illustrates the point I'm trying to make here. So very much in the middle of the 1700s, that seems to be the case. Um, so what you see coming into the Napoleonic Age and uh, is an increased reference to parts of the musket and techniques that you, when you read them, it sounds very much like aiming. Um, in some cases, it's looking along the barrel from the uh, breech nail to the sight or the bayonet lug, as it were, because all these muskets, although they don't have sights per se, there is a lug that's placed on the front of the barrel where a sight typically would be, and this is used to secure the bayonet. However, it is used in some of the uh, the period texts and referred to as a sight. Uh, but what, of course, it, they completely lack is any kind of backsight. So you're relying on this, the sort of the contour of the barrel. Uh, the the, the barrel is obviously the, the thickest at the breech, where, where it has to contain the, the biggest pressures. And the tang that comes off the back of the barrel uh, is the piece that is, uh, there's a hole in it and a screw. Uh, commonly known as the uh, breech nail. And this holds the breech in, in the wood. Uh, and you see references to this sort of this line of sight being, being uh, prescribed. So look along the barrel from the breech nail to the front sight or, or the, it, I say front sight, uh, it, that's sort of the way it is, is discussed as being, but uh, obviously it's sort of primary function is holding the bandit in place. Um, I, in the process of, of ramping up the, the series on the best on the channel, um, I've you know, had the opportunity to, to read some of these things. And even within the same manual, there are different instances and descriptions of, of its use and the prescription of its use. So when we look at sort of the, the basic platoon exercise, and this, this stemming from, uh, the 1804, uh, exercise, uh, it talks about when your recruits are being taught the motions of how to hold it and pouring the powder down the barrel and all that kind of thing. They are uh, told to use 
and look along the barrel, sort of in very simple way, form of description. When we move into uh, a part of the manual known as the firings, which is how you present your fire as a group. So when you're standing in ranks, who does what, who steps where, all that kind of thing, it just increasing from a individual level of, of, of uh, uh, maneuver into a group sort of level. Um, there's a little bit more detail uh, in terms of how you look along the barrel. And then when you move within the same manual, when you move into the light infantry uh, drill, which admittedly at this time isn't necessarily practiced by everybody, just those designated as light infantrymen, um, it goes into quite a bit of detail, looking using the the, the the barrel from the bridge nail to the site and looking along it at your mark. So it, as I say, it, it's interesting that these early manuals don't have one standard throughout. There seems to be this sort of, in some states, a, a gradual training progression, but also just in, in the use of the, the, the English language in terms of its descriptive capabilities in, 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 in pointing it in that way. So... Um, to say that they were not aimed, again, a bit of context. Uh, there is certainly indication that you have to look along the barrel because there is a target that you need to hit at and you need to point it at that target. Whereas earlier in the century or in the 1700s, presumably you were so close that that leveling, making it parallel to the ground was what was important. And looking along it, you know, by one eye, along the barrel wasn't thought of as being required. By the 1800s, this seems to be changing and some direction to how to aim the smoothbore musket is given, yeah. So um, in 1803, if my memory serves me correct, the light infantry pattern musket is introduced uh, for the light infantry, both the foreign battalions and nominally the light infantry companies within battalions uh, to what extent that actually happens um, can be, depending on logistical issues, um, somewhat suspect. Uh, but generally speaking, it, it was it has been it is documented that it was used uh, extensively, and it has a backside on it. And so the, this very simple addition of a backside to a smoothbore musket, it's got some other details. Uh, it's got a a brass sort of pistol grip style scroll trigger guard. Um, all these things to aid the the level of shall we say, comfort for the shooter, um, enable to bring the musket up, look across the sights, um, and, you know, engage a target uh, more effectively. Of course, in the light infantry battle, your targets are often individuals, just like you yourself are standing with your file mate, but you're, the next guy beside you might be a few meters away. Uh, so you're fighting in, a, in, a, in this, this no man's land battle, against people who are doing the same thing. So you can completely understand that the thought was there and the perceived need of having a weapon that was more suited to that kind of fighting. And one of the primary things to do then is give it a set of sights. So what you're doing, you're limiting that 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 sort of, you know, you got to stick your tongue out your the side of your mouth and you got to stand on one leg and squint a certain way to get that sight that look along the barrel to make sure that you can be as accurate as possible. Well, you sort of take that out of the equation now. And by the addition of this back sight, you, you, you greatly increase the effectiveness, especially at these shorter ranges. It just, it's just so much easier to, to aim it, especially with a bit of practice, uh, knowing how to, you know, there's the sight picture to take, um, the, where to aim on a person, 
uh, given a certain range, um, you know, these sorts of things were practiced by the light infantry. And uh, you would have become sort of aware of, through your training as a light infantry soldier, about how to use your weapon effectively. So, um, you know, it, yes, they were aimed, essentially, in a nutshell. What we consider aiming today is is not quite where they were at, but certainly it was very much an embryonic state. And it only gets, as the century progresses, the 1800s, that is, it obviously gets much more uh, refined and, uh, and effective. Well, you, you obviously have shot a brown bess uh, a lot, and there's a lot of YouTube videos that people can go watch of that. But can you just give us a sort of summation of uh, how accurate you found the weapons to be and at what sort of ranges uh, you, you've, you, you think you would be able to, to hit a human-sized target generally? Right. I'm, I've shot mine. Um, I limited at this point to 100 yards. And I was shooting uh, at a target that was at about five feet high and two, three, two and a half feet, two, three feet wide. And just put a big black dot in the middle of it. Um, it was used, the particular target I'm referring to, the reason why I can't tell you exactly the dimensions is because it was used for another project and it was scaled. So it's got some weird number of inches and, and, and fractions to make it representative of a target placed at greater range. So, um, so far, that's the sort of target I've defaulted to because I see that as being, you know, big enough that it'll accommodate all these inefficiencies in the system, but also me and not being, uh, you know, the best of, of shots. I'm not the best of shots at the best of times, but when you take the sights out of it, you know, it just, it's a lot more practice, a lot more just gut feeling of how to hold it properly. Um, how much of that front sight of that bayonet lug am I supposed to be able to see at a given range over over top of the, the hump of the breech? And that's essentially how you're gauging this sort of uh, elevation. But then you take that sight picture and then you aim at the top, aim at the bottom, aim at the middle. Um, you know, these are the sort of things that one does when you're trying to get a uh, brown best to shoot well in a military kind of context. Um, so, you know, can I hit that that target at 100 yards? Yes, I can. Uh, that's obviously taking my time. Uh, I recently completed a project, as far as time goes, I re uh, completed a project that involved a little bit of uh, on-the-clock shooting, as it were. Um, it was surprising to me, that coming out of that experiment, uh, you know, the loading is, I sort of hear no there, I can load it not ex exceptionally fast by any means, but relatively efficiently. Um, but the time I found it took to aim it, because it just simply, it was uneasy, and it takes a lot of concentration in my mind, to remember where I was supposed to hold and how much of the sight am I supposed to see and then place that on the target. And then the last thing that comes into play when, when shooting it is the, the lock and the trigger pull. These locks are big. The springs are big. They're heavy. The amount of metal that's moving uh, when you fire it is significant. And the luxury of a light trigger pull is non-existent. Uh, so when you're pulling that trigger, it's an effort. And that will affect, you know, sort of the accuracy of the musket in when you fire it. More practice at it, the better you get, like with everything. Uh, but it's just something that, for instance, uh, shooting the Baker or shooting other later Victorian arms, uh, be the percussion lock or whatnot, you know, that refinement of the lock 
the size of the springs, everything's a lot smaller and a lot finer. So that the, the spring pressures are less and it's easier to fire for sure. So these are the little things that sort of I've picked up in learning uh, how to shoot the best. Uh, by no means where I probably could be if I spent, you know, three years down the road, once I've spent more time, I'll probably be better at it, like most people are when they practice. Uh, you know, militarily, they um, they didn't shoot a lot, but interestingly enough, there was allotments made for practice ammunition. I think it was 20 or 30 rounds for the line, that is to say the, the, the normal um, infantry, for practice purposes every year. So there was uh, this is in the sort of the peninsular era, sort of early 1800s. So there was a lot made for practicing and target shooting. Uh, you know, the targets that would have been used in the line infantry context wouldn't have been the same necessarily as those in the light infantry context um, and more geared towards what their typical sort of enemy would look like, which is much like the line standing up essentially shoulder to shoulder uh, and presenting that, that so-called masked target. Um, so, you know, these details of how to aim and, and whatnot over and above would have been focused on the collective firing of a given unit, of a given company or uh, a, a, you know, half company or whatnot. So when you get into the light infantry side of things, things get a lot more individualized and, you know, individuals firing at a single target and assessment made of their shooting and learning how those muskets and, and, and rifles, which we'll get to in a minute perhaps, um, are actually how they shoot, where to aim, because my rifle likes, I have to aim here to hit the target or I want it, et cetera, et cetera. So the light infantry have a little bit more opportunity to, to establish that than perhaps the line does. Um, the thing about that's sort of frustrating in, in terms of um, the material that I'm making for the channel is the lack of the references, they just simply aren't there in the detail that you'd love them to be. Uh, and a lot of um, anecdotal you know, examples need to be read. And, and I've had a lot of great help on the channel uh, in regards to that um, in, by, by learned individuals who have, who have uh, you know, volunteered and found information that is relevant to this kind of thing, which puts things and fills out some of the blanks that are left by the ambiguity in some of the, the, the manuals. Um, obviously with the projects I do on the channel, the manuals are always the first thing to go to and uh, provide the lion's share often of any of the material that I'm trying to sort of present. So um, it's been a wonderful and really exciting kind of journey so far. Um, you know, when we get shorter ranges than that 100 yards, your sort of chances of hitting and, and coming as far as a grouping go, you know, get smaller, obviously. It's physics. Um, and the amount of time that you need to spend in concentration and in aiming is obviously reduced as well uh, when those ranges get really close. And it, it speaks to, though, that so much, uh, especially anecdotally, of the warfare of the era, you know, is beyond, below that sort of 100-yard threshold. And you can understand that, you know, if we're able to hold our fire till 50 yards before we, we do, then that gives an advantage. Um, if especially if we're able to shelter, whether we're lying down uh, until the very last moment when we sort of stand up out of the corn and present ourselves and the enemy sees us appear essentially out of nowhere. It could be the corn, it could be wheat, it could be uh, a hill, a, a ditch, something like that. 
Um, but that shock value and then the immediate discharge at exceptionally close range of, you know, everybody's musket followed again by the characteristic, you know, excuse me, cheer and a charge. And you can you can piece together this this pattern of, of warfare that, that's used again and again and again. And it, honestly, it's used by, you know, sort of all sides to varying degrees. One thing I should ask, actually, um, that you alluded to a bit earlier, was the name Brown Bess. Where where did that name come from? And, and are all of these different, uh, you know, the land pattern and, and, and the short pattern and the India pattern, are they all called the Brown Bess? And if so, where did that nickname come from? Um, yeah, it's uh, one of those things that has been really lost in time, really, that... I don't think there's a single specific reference as to how and why it got called that. Um, but interestingly enough, its colloquial use extends right up until the adoption of rifles as a general arm of the army, which is the 1850s. So people are still referring to the percussion locked smoothbore musket as the Brown Bess. I would say typically today, the brown bess refers to a flintlock, um, you know, of the 17 and early 1800s. Essentially, when someone says brown bess, that's what they think of. But when you read uh, like journal entries, um, uh, like the Royal United Services Institute, uh, which is like a professional military journal, um, there's all kinds of references in the 1830s and 40s to the brown bess. And you read um, other sort of histories uh, from the 1800s, looking back. So from the Victorian or the mid-Victorian era back to the early Victorian or sort of, you know, Napoleonic era. And they are referring to the Brown Bess as the, um, in the 1830s and, and 20s uh, and 40s, which is, uh, has moved in well into the percussion era. So that name sort of has stuck. And I, through looking at these, these, these works that, it is essentially seems to me that that name refers to the smoothbore musket. And, and although at some point, you know, whether it's a fairly modern occurrence or not, it, it, it sort of encompassment shrinks, if that's a word, shrinks to back to that sort of flintlock, um, Napoleonic and 1700s era uh, weapon. Um, there's all kinds of stories out there about the color of the barrel is one of them. Um, incidentally, barrels weren't browned until very, very late. Uh, they certainly were after uh, the Napoleonic era. Um, but for the, the most part, for the life of the, the brown bess uh, through its entire lifespan, they were polished bright. And the men used to use brick dust and, and polish them and get rid of the rust so that that bright, shiny barrel was something. So I don't know how you could you know, associate a name like that with the detail coming from a, a specific aspect of the weapon when it never had a brown barrel for the for the per, vast majority of its lifespan. Um, so that's one of them. The other one is the color of the stock. Okay, that to me that really uh, okay, it's brown wood, like all wood is, with the exception perhaps of a sea service musket, which is painted black. Got it. Um, that uh, again, it's kind of grasping at straws, as the term goes. Um, the, the other side of it, the best side of it, there's often an association made with, a, a, a bastardization of a German word for, I think it's Bush, 
like for gun or I mean, the, the exact, not up in my German translations, but uh, this is just things that I'm picking out of my head and things I've read uh, before that that was a corruption of that term. Uh, maybe, I don't know what necessarily, uh, there, there may have been some sort of association. To date, and I by no means am saying this is what it is, uh, but to me, uh, to date, the best reason for this name in being in existence is actually given, pretty sure now, I'm just double checking myself, is on the Royal Armory's website. I think it's the Royal Armory's website. And there, there's a paper that's written about this very question. And the deductions that the, and I can't remember the author of the paper, but the deductions that are drawn from it are interesting because to me, they're sort of the most soldierly. If we can associate perhaps a somewhat loose and crass sense of humor associated to soldiery in general, I think generally speaking, that can be the case, that the term Bess is described as being a name uh, that is somewhat pedestrian uh, and perhaps associated to uh, women of less than uh, particular virtue who may frequent business at night. In that sense, these types of people, and this is all laid out in the article, which is very interesting. Uh, these types of people were people that soldiers perhaps would gravitate to, moving from billet to billet, that they're looking for a bit of conjugal company. Well, you know, they have no time, they have no resources, they have no money to swoon somebody out of the local village. But there are some individuals who might accept, you know, some perhaps currency, maybe. Or maybe they're just like to frequent those types of, of establishments that find a lot of soldiers visiting. You know, I, I'm going down a bit of a rabbit hole here, and by no means I'm trying to point fingers at people. However, this is, again, the realities of the era. And uh, so the association with, you know, them, those individuals being a best, like I go, go downtown and get me a best tonight, because that's what I feel like doing. This is where that, that name, the best part of the name, perhaps, as is postulated in the, in the article, comes from. So there's all kinds of anecdotal examples of soldiers sort of naming their rifles after a, a woman or, or, or some such. Uh, and maybe that this kind of uh, uh, association is where this best part of the name comes from. And the brown comes from a, a, an examination of um, contemporary English. And brown being used as a word to describe something that's very plain, which obviously it is. <laughs> but to say that, you know, it's, it's not colorful, it's not, you know, striking. But for something to be brown is very plain and sort of unremarkable, like the musket. So not the color of the musket, but the fact that it's just an ordinance pattern, land pattern musket. It's very, there's nothing special about it. So the weapon itself is quite plain and not in the terms of, again, its ornamentation, although the India pattern is lacking some of the, the stuff that, that the earlier patterns do. But it's it's the same thing can be said even today, I would expect, if you take what the military gives somebody as a, a typical military rifle and then you take a civilian rifle, whether it be for sporting or, or some such, and there might be engraving on it, it might have all kinds of extra bits and pieces, um, you know, modern like 
uh, things attached to it. The, 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 the highest in technology of, of accessories that maybe the military doesn't uh, can't afford or, or doesn't provide. Um, you can see that same kind of that relationship with something that's being just bog standard, plain, unremarkable, um, and the term brown being used to describe that. And so anyway, that, that to my mind, reading that article, it really kind of resonated in me as being, you know, chances are the simplest explanation is probably the one that is in reality the, the one. And all these things about German translations of, 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 of uh, you know, words and whatnot in an English-speaking army. And I don't know. When you talk about relating to the plain and, you know, loose women, those are two things that one might be able to associate with soldiery of the era. They turn, end up calling their musket that, the brown bass. Probably an unfair question. Uh, so tell me if if uh, if this is one you can answer. Compared to the muskets fielded by other armies of the era, um, would you say the brown bess was on a par, better, worse, or is that a difficult question to answer? Hmm. Uh, I think a lot of that, uh, and that that the arguments for answers to that question. Uh, in a nutshell, no. Militarily speaking, musketry of the French was just as effective as musketry of the Prussians or, or whatnot, as far as the weapon goes. Um, I think a lot of the uh, the choice between them and the, the people stating their choice between them revolves a lot, perhaps, with the way they look, uh, the way they feel, the shape of the stock. But in the end, they're all flintlock smoothbore muskets that use bullets in the military context that are, you know, uh, re reduced windage. So given those constraints, I, I can't see how the, the, the Charleville musket is any less effective or more effective than the Brown Bess. It's a smaller caliber. The French muskets were 6.9 caliber at the bore. So the bullets would have had to be, and I'm not up in my French ammunition, but you know, if we take a similar ratio, are they like 0.6? So they're smaller. Um, I, I have heard it I've read that, uh, you know, there was some sort of uh, you know, British soldiers could use French ammunition in a pinch, but the reverse would not be the case because they wouldn't be able to hammer down a 0.69 ball with the paper in a 6.9 barrel, especially if it was fouled. Uh, okay. Uh, but in terms of, you know, were they effective? Was one more effective than the other? Was one prone to fouling more? No, no. There's smoothbore and there's no lubrication on the cartridge it's just plain paper so uh in, in a nutshell no and I, I i just i'm just trying to think of things that you could use to measure them against um and you know would a smaller caliber ball fly better through the air um or or worse through the air uh, would there be less velocity would it carry its velocity more? You know, these are sort of some things that you can perhaps argue the point. Uh, but are you really establishing, you know, aspects that really separate it from other other muskets, as an example? Uh, and I just I can't see it. That um, you might be able to prove it at a tar at a range target shooting 
that, oh, look, you know, I fired 10 rounds and the grouping's this big with the brown bass and I fired 10 rounds and the grouping's, oh, you know, this big. Well, militarily, that means nothing. Absolutely nothing. You know, if you're shooting like this with a French musket and you're shooting like this with a brown bass, that makes a difference. But but you're not. You know, you just you just simply are not. And uh, um, so... I think more more has to do with the bigger picture of musketry in general, um, how it's delivered, when it's delivered in that moment in battle, um, the ability of the men in terms of their, their platoon exercise and drilling and loading fast, uh, and also the, the timing on the battlefield, uh, the tactical timing, the delivering of fire, and the follow-up by, uh, you know, assault or uh, a charge, as it were. Um, these are all things that come much more into play with when we look at the the results on the battlefield. At Al Buhera, uh, which is one of the perhaps perhaps best known examples of what essentially becomes a musketry duel, you know, at really close range, that the the battle you know ebbs and flows over a very small uh, you know battlefield but what predominates there uh, you know and cavalry attacks coming out of nowhere notwithstanding is this like toe to toe slugging it out shooting at one another without any kind of immediate you know attack in this case the Brit the french are attacking and the british are you know meeting that attack and and defending uh but the casualties incurred on both sides are horrific with essentially the French withdrawing as opposed to a, you know, uh, a decisive, um, you know, attack or a charge made and a route that by the point at which the battle ends, everyone's too exhausted to do anything. And that's simply either exhausted, but also militarily exhausted in terms of casualties. There's just no one there. Everyone's the, the battalions are completely shot up. They're not big enough uh, um, to to you know operate. Uh, the brigades aren't big enough to to form any kind of you know determined attack uh, in terms of the British because literally they, they fought themselves to a standstill. And uh, there's an account that I was reading just recently in in preparation for one of the projects, and it just talks of the constant closing into the center that was going on, so that the battalions had lined up, but through casualties. You know, when, when, when all of a sudden the guy beside you goes down, you close into the colors, which are in the center of the battalion. So people are having to, you know, they, they fired their musket and then, oh, Jesus, there's a big gap, you know, off to my side. Well, I, as I'm loading, I'm shuffling over and the sergeant or the corporal behind me is reminding me of this. It's like close in, close in, because we want to maintain our, our, our frontage, our, sort of the continuity of our frontage and not have, you know, individual spaced across. So this constant closing is happening and that is because of the fire of the musketry. And we speak of the effectiveness of one or of the other. Both sides suffer like that, both sides. And if one musket was really more effective than the other, when you're putting it in a position like that, where you're literally standing toe to toe and belting it out for you know hours, then there's a bit of a withdrawal and a, a respite. And then they, on they come again and everything grinds to a halt and more firing takes place. If one musket was really that more effective, then it would be shown in a battle like that because there was no territorial advantage. There's slopes. I've been there. I've stood on the ground 
and the slopes involved there are um, uh, not insurmountable. It's not like they were climbing up their fields, their plowed fields. So is there a grade to march up? Yes, there is. Is it a scrambly, like rock, you know, scale or uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, like a scree slope or something that would provide a physical barrier? Absolutely not. Um, and it's a question of marching up, you know, a rise. So you essentially can take terrain, you know, out of a 50-yard musketry duel in, in that sense. There's no walls to hide behind. There's no brush in between you to have to navigate. Uh, none of that. It's just literally across an open field. Um, there's no, uh, you know, there's no crest of a hill that you're hiding behind. Um, especially when you get to that range, that 50 yard range, the, you, the elevation that you gain, um, at the ground there or from the ground at El Bujera essentially doesn't mean anything in, in the way I, I saw the battlefield. One thing that sort of blows my mind is how long the Brown Best was in service uh, in one form or another with the British Army. Um, can you just sort of give us a brief explanation of how long it was in service and when they f eventually uh, phased it out? Right. Well, I mean, the flintlock comes into service uh, in its earliest forms. Like we're talking the doglock and all that kind of thing, as we talked about at the beginning here, you know, in this very late 1600s and becomes the de facto military arm, you know, like at Blenheim, and what was Blenheim, 1704, 1703, 1704, the Battle of Blenheim, it's around there, you know, Duke of uh, So, you know, it was, the flintlock was the arm of the era by that point. And essentially the technology, you know, once the, the, that land pattern musket comes in and sort of formalizes the army, standardizes the army pattern of, of uh, firelock, it lasts up until the the seven sorry the eighteen the early eighteen forties, before in especially in colonial um, uh, posts, it finally gets replaced. I think I was reading a a um, description of a campaign in China in, during one of the Opium Wars, and and it talks about um, the use of the still the flintlock um, smoothbore musket. Uh, at the very twilight of its operational sort of use. Um, I, I might be wrong. I'm, I'm just, again, off the top of my head, uh, that the, as I recall reading, there was a mixture. So there was percussion uh, smoothbores in service in certain battalions, but some battalions hadn't received them yet. So they were still using the flintlock. And that very much would have been the India pattern musket. Um, a point that we didn't really uh, brush on was the introduction of the, the what was called the new land pattern, which again was a further refinement um, of of the uh, uh, economies, as it were. The stock was less ornate, uh, the lock was much more uh, plain than it had been even on the India pattern, but essentially was still the same flintlock smoothbore musket. So uh, capability-wise, it really it did it did gain those inches back to the shortland um, uh, status. And it was intended to replace the India pattern, but then the Napoleonic Wars really got going and they realized we don't, we can't afford to retool everything and go with a new pattern of musket. Apparently there were some made, um, there's talk that they had been issued uh, to the guards for the Hundred Days campaigns, which culminates in the Battle of Waterloo. So the guards may have had the new land pattern, but after that, and may have maintained their use, 
but there weren't that many made. So uh, keeping them within a small organization like the guards that, and, and being sort of the, 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 the longer weapon, the better weapon, perhaps, arguably. But the, the India pattern musket remains in service right to the end of the 1730s and into the 1740s. 1840s. So, I mean, that's a huge, a huge window of service for a flintlock smoothbore musket that essentially, capability-wise, let's call it, doesn't change at all. Obviously, it does change pattern-wise. The, the 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 details change, but the caliber remains, not notwithstanding the change uh, reduction from seven eight to seven five. Uh, the capabilities remain the same. It's subject to the same weather conditions and the effect of that weather on the musket. The uh, the same method of ignition uh, is prone. You know, the flint is fallible. The tempering on the frizzen, uh, what we call today the frizzen, the the, the hammer, it's fallible. So. You know, all these things come into play. Um, it's interesting because how could technology, I don't say stall, but maintain for so long? It's a, it's an incredible question. And they're just, they're just, I don't know what it was. The I mean, you, you, you can point to what actually started it, and that was Forsyth, who invented fulminative mercury, if I'm not mistaken, which leads to the adoption and the creation of percussion ignition. Right, which is the next big thing that comes around um, with the 1839 musket, uh, issued in the early 1840s, and, and then subsequent to that, the 1842 musket, which again is issued into the 1840s, and is used really for the last time uh, in the Crimea. Um, so you're talking about the Brown Bess, uh, it, Brown Bess in its colloquial um, historical mention, including percussion uh, versions as it were, you know, lasting until the 1850s. And and even into the late 1850s, the Indian Mutiny sees all kinds of use of the 1842 pattern um, in the British Army as well as the India, uh, the uh, East India Army as well. So, you know, it, uh, it's, it's incredible when you look at that. And to ask that question of why it lasted so long, I, I don't know. That just footlocks lasted for 150 years. And that's it, how long it took before an invention supplanted that kind of thing. Maybe a lot of it had to do with the, the comfort level that, that there, you know, there's no need to change it because it works the way we fight. It works. We can make it work. Um, and then, you know, you look at the differences over 150 years and from 1850s to, to let's call it 1900. Look at the, look at the change that happens basically from the Brown Bess to the magazine rifle and all the things that happen in between that. I mean, it's it, the Victorian era. It just the the curve, the that that technological um, you know invention curve, as it were, just gets on a rocket and shoots into the sky. It's it's really fascinating, and you know why things lasted so long as far as the brown bass goes. I, I I don't really have an answer. It's just the technology just didn't get invented or implemented, really. And then I guess just to wrap up, then Rob, uh, Rob um, you've you've got got a brown bass. You've you've now fired it quite a lot. How fond of the weapon are you? How much do you enjoy shooting with it, and uh, and, and 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 why? Yeah, it uh, it's it's been great fun. I actually, um, and it never it made one small appearance on the channel, but I actually had a reproduction round bass uh, from quite some time ago, and that was like well before the channel got uh, started up. Um, and it was a reproduction that made in India, uh, and it. So it's an India-made reproduction of an India-patterned 
brown bass. <laughs> and uh, uh, it, it had some interesting characteristics about it. Um, it was made of, some of which were aesthetic, some of which were, were mechanical. Uh, it, it fires, it's just, it's safe, it fires fine. But I did notice some, some peculiarities in the bore. And uh, quite frankly, I, I, when I got it, I sort of launched into it. And I, I don't know, I got distracted. Um, I think the channel has is, is given me cause to revisit the brown bass. And in doing so, it's become much more um, interesting to me. Because the whole, it's not just having it, owning a firearm and shooting it. And, oh, look, I can only hit something at, you know, 75 yards. Okay. To some people, that may not just not be fun. Um, but then revisiting it and looking at the greater context in terms of the anecdotal stuff, like the battlefield kind of things that we've talked about so far, but also the technical aspects of it. And also uh, the the exercise, the manual, the platoon exercise, the, the drills associated. So really the whole encompassing military context of it is really it, it's very interesting. And there's, I mean, I can think of a, a number of projects that I have either on the go or, you know, on the docket that I really want to, you know, put it through its paces and see what it can do and see the results I get and match those against uh, preconceptions, but also, you know, anecdotal kind of stuff as well, um, as best as I can, of course, as the channel always likes to do. Um, so I much enjoy, I much enjoy, enjoy it much more now than I did when I got that reproduction some of which has to do with my eventual acquisition of a, of a real one. Uh, mine dates from 1820. And uh, as I've been told, I'm not much of a provenance kind of guy. I'm not a person who goes out of their way to get a specific um, firearm because of a, a specific type or a, a, a pattern um, or its markings and where it's been and all that kind of stuff. I certainly appreciate that kind of that collector you know, aspect to it. And those that do, again, I greatly appreciate and the things that they learn about them. But for me, it needs to be, and I think we talked a little bit about this in our first discussion way back when, was that what's important to me is that it's representative of the type. And mine is actually, well, I've been told it come, dates from 1820, and it was a part of a contract let out by the government, the colonial government of New Brunswick, which is a province in Canada. At the time, in 1820, it was a separate colony. It wasn't Canada wasn't a country back then, and so these individual colonies would then be responsible for their own defense, for their own, you know, ra raising and equipping of their own militia. So they essentially contracted the trade in 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 the UK that we need, you know, 10,000 muskets or whatever the number was, and so they put the contract out and it gets bid on, and the trade in the UK, whether it be in London or uh, Birmingham among other places, um, they make a bunch of muskets for who's the customer again? New, New, New Brunswick, where is that? Doesn't matter. Let's get it on the ship and get it to the docks and it'll get to where it gets, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, it's very much a second type India pattern brown bass. And I saw it and I sort of uh, had to do a little bit of, um, what's the word? bookkeeping <laughs> to make that happen but i did and i money well spent as far as i'm concerned that it has the features it has the feel i mean it's a real one 
and I compare it to my reproduction, and there really isn't a a a, a comparison. That it feels better, the lock is better, um, it shoots better. Believe it or not, um, I I to this day I think there's something funny with the reproduction bore that uh, when I load it. I feel about halfway down that things get really, really loose. So I'm wondering if there is a somewhat taper to the bore. Anyway, um, that's neither here nor there. The the brown best that I have now doesn't suffer from that at all. And I, you can feel the barrel is, it's a proper military musket. And I can feel these differences. And then, so part of my sort of rediscovering of it, as it were, comes from that aspect as well that um, having a real one in my hands and being able to put it through its paces um, and uh, is it, something that uh, combining it with the, the military aspects and sort of really re-energized the, the look at it. So yes, I, I greatly uh, appreciate firing it. I enjoy it. The only thing I could say that uh, is how do you, not even lacking, but it's just different is that whole range accuracy piece because you know, I, I mean, I've shot my P53 out to 700 yards. I just shot the Martini out to 700 yards, not overly effectively, mind you. Uh, just the other day, you know, um, those kinds of things are, those rifles are capable of doing that. The Brown Best simply isn't. And you have to just shrink your world right down to get an appreciation. And again, we spoke about it earlier, is that understanding of these ranges that these battles took place at, as far as the musketry aspect goes, are just minuscule when you compare to anything uh, later, you know? Um, so I, I greatly enjoy it. I, I've really enjoyed getting the series on the channel up and running. Um, I've done two videos now, uh, an introductory video, as well as um, a video featuring a comparison between it and the Baker, which we'll talk about perhaps some other time. And, uh, you know, again, I've got a number either on the go or on the docket that I want to get up and running and, and really provide that, thing that so much of the, the brown best especially is anecdotal um, but to bring the musketry side of it into play as far as presenting that to the public is something that um, the, the realities of it are, are often unavailable um, and so I'm really looking forward as you say to, to, to getting into that and, uh, and presenting it as I do on the channel. Brilliant I mean for anyone who's listening or, or watching uh, you should really check out Rob's series on the brown bass. I was I was watching your uh, your comparison with the Baker rifle earlier, and and there's some very interesting conclusions which I won't give away now, but uh, which I found quite surprising um, and and very interesting. So thanks for all the all the great work you're doing, Rob. So guys, I hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I did. Rob really is a font of knowledge and also a true gentleman. If I'd have been a red coat at Talavera or Salamanca, I'd have been very happy to have him as my sergeant. So before you go, please do remember to subscribe and to write a five-star review. In the next episode, I'll be taking a deep dive into the early life of Sir Arthur Wellesley alongside my good friend Josh Proven from the blog and YouTube channel Adventures in Historyland. You don't want to miss that. 